Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at the Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. Okay, so Swin, last week, we talked about your reporting that Donald Trump was not a fan of Saturday Night Live, and in fact had suggested the federal government might want to step in and do something about that rude Alec Baldwin. I think you have an update for us. To be fair, that is your and my ideological perspective on modern-day SNL. That is not a unique trend to Trump and Trumpism that we think the federal government should step in and shut down Saturday Night Live. Just to be fair to Mr. Trump. So after we put out our story, headline of which is Trump wanted his Justice Department to stop SNL from teasing him. So this was yet another instance of Donald Trump wanting to use the massive weight of the federal government to crush his personal and political enemies and people around him saying, okay, that is way too stupid to do. Let's just move on to his next outrage or his next policy or whatever. So that was the state of it last week. So what has happened since then? I understand your reporting has been, has set off the former president's ire. So I think around the evening after we put up this story. And I was not able to respond to it immediately because I was out shopping for like baby clothing and stuff like that with my wife and my mother. So I felt like I would have been murdered if I had stepped away from that for a moment to tweet mean things about the ex-president. That's a real that's a real flex, by the way. It's like, I can't think of the president, <laughs> former president, harassing. I'm building my family. That's very wholesome. You're like a trad guy. Basically, you know, yeah. You're like, reject Twitter feuds, embrace tradition. <laughs> reject both family and modernity, yes. But when Trump put out his statement bashing our reporting and claiming it was false, he put at the end that having said all of that, I do believe that Saturday Night Live and Jimmy Kimmel and all those other late night losers, what they do on air does constitute an illegal campaign contribution. 
and should be looked into and should be against the law. So in his statement when he was claiming that the Daily Beast was fake news, etc, etc, he did have an explanation for his stupid harebrained legal rationale as to why the Justice Department should go after things like Saturday Night Live. So I guess I have to thank Donald Trump for that. So Swin's reporting validated, Fever Dreams team stays winning. Exactly. A thousand percent. So, Will, moving on. You just got back from Arizona. How was that? It's your favorite state in the Union, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I've returned from my sojourn in the great American Southwest. I'm decked out in turquoise rocks, wearing a Coca Pelli shirt. And uh, yeah, I have all my dream catchers. And so now I'm back. But yeah, so I went to Arizona for various reasons, in part research for my book for HarperCollins upcoming on QAnon. I was hanging out with self proclaimed Q, Austin Steinbart, a gentleman who is known to his enthusiasts as Baby Q. But also I went to, because they're wrapping up the Arizona audit, and obviously this has been a storyline for us on the podcast, I went to the site of the Arizona audit, which was kind of this disused stadium. And I will say, seeing it in person was really something. It's, what if the fate of democratic legitimacy in the United States hinged on a place where you might hold like a state debate tournament? And so, you know, there were, I don't know, maybe like 30 trucks in various cars, but mostly trucks, in the parking lot. And so I was like, I couldn't get into the audit. And so I figured, well, let me do a straw poll on the crazy bumper stickers. And we had a lot of like, like, yeah, I like LGBT, Liberty Guns, Beer, and Trump. We had a couple of those, but only one Punisher bumper sticker. And so I think that's how we know that the audit is objective and it's going to be okay. These guys aren't cool. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And this was taking place in Phoenix, right? Yes, Phoenix, which a city I've never been to before. And look, I will say it was very hot time all around. I'm not going to put down the folks of Phoenix. It was an interesting experience. I will say on my way to the audit, I stumbled upon another cult that I'm familiar with. I literally was driving by and I was like, is that the cult of St. Germain? Okay, well, what is the cult of St. Germain exactly? Is it exactly what it sounds like to me? There's kind of like St. Germain is this figure that some people believe is an alien who has kind of appeared at various points through time. And like, there's kind of a foundational story about St. Germain that he's going to change the world financial system and make everyone rich. And obviously, if that sounds like kind of a part of QAnon, you would be right. So St. Germain is kind of a precursor to QAnon. But so I was driving by and I was like, what's that weird building? And it was like St. Germain's spot. And I was like, oh, man. So anyways, definitely was a lot of cool stuff going on in Phoenix. And but my real reason to be there was that I was attending the premiere of over, former Overstocks.com CEO Patrick Burns election for fraud movie, The Deep Rig. And so this is also kind of the our summer movie corner. In case our listeners don't know, Patrick Byrne, towards the end of the Trump-Biden presidential transition, actually did become a player. He actually uh, was in a rather infamous meeting at the White House with Trump and a bunch of other Trump lieutenants. Like, he is someone who, to this day, along with favorites of the show like Mike Lindell and Pillow, are still fueling a lot of this anti-democratic hysteria about the 2020 election and simply are not letting it go. Well, memorably, is Patrick Byrne had this scene in the White House where he's just scarfing down meatballs. And he's like, you got to fire Pat Cipollone. You got to <laughs> Im- impose martial law or like all these other guys. And like every account is just like multiple, like his account, a bunch of other White House people were like, man, this guy loved the hors d'oeuvres. And this is something you always encounter 
with there's a lot of when people hang out with Trump is it's always his grandmother's recipe of X, right? It's like people go to Mar-a-Lago. Oh, well, I couldn't have the I had to have the grandmother's meatloaf, right? Or it's like the grandmother's meatballs. It's a little uh, suspicious, I would say. But anyways, so yeah, Patrick Byrne had this movie premiere. Obviously, Mike Lindell has his own voter fraud movie. And this this movie, I watched the, the director of this had previously made an alien movie. And so I watched that the night before this event. And I was kind of like watching it out of the corner of my eye. And then suddenly there's like a Nazi submarine in space. And I was like, man, this guy's on something. So that's like the kind of crew we're dealing with here. This guy gets it. So the deep rig, it was sort of doubling as a like a celebration of the end of the Arizona audit. And so there were all these people watching on the live stream as well. But like the QAnon con, which cost me 500 bucks, the deep rig was not cheap even to watch on the live stream. It was a whopping $45. So they're really uh, raking it in from these folks. Was it worth it? Paint a picture for our listeners what is actually in this stupid fucking movie. I will say everyone involved in this was very welcoming to me in a in a very sort of unusual way for me to encounter. But yeah, so the deep rig is it's centered on like what if there was what if a movie about election fraud was set in the haunting of Hill House? Okay, so the <laughs> there's so many like anonymous characters in this movie that everyone is kind of shot like it's either the back of their heads or like sometimes people are shot through like a shat like their reflection from a shattered mirror and it's just very spooky. And so you have Patrick Byrne who's like a very much like a leather jacket guy if you get my drift, and so he's wearing like a leather jacket and he's like I put together this team of badasses we call them the dolphin speakers because like when you get together they you have no you have no clue what the fuck they're saying to each other okay tell us more about the dolphin speakers i did not know that that's what they called this ragtag team of election overturners (laughs) so this team has about like 20 different names and all of them sort of boil down to the fact that it's all bs right and so so in this case it's the dolphin speakers because these guys are just so in the weeds and they're so into tech stuff that like to you and I, the average layman, when they get together, it's just like they're just like saying like ballots, like words we could never understand, like ballots and computers. <laughs> Speaking in a way that no one can understand. Now you might say, hmm, I wonder if they're so inscrutable. I wonder if their claims about election fraud will make any sense. And they do not. And so you have like kind of these characters, right? So you have Patrick Byrne. And sort of the thing with the deep rig is everyone has kind of their own idea about like there's not like one coherent thing. And so you have Patrick Byrne is like me and the Dolphin speakers dug this thing up. And then you have Jovan Pulitzer, this inventor who's kind of a, a very colorful character on his own. And he's holding up all this like colored paper. And then you have like a bunch of like local Arizona kooks with their own theories. They're like uh, a bunch of 60 year olds didn't have their gender listed in the voter databases. Ergo, the election is busted. I mean, really, that was it. And I will say this crowd was going wild. You had a couple hundred people. They freaking loved it. Just overall, I mean, it was a very crazy experience. This lady next to me was just really decked out in like red, white, and blue stuff. And she leans over and she's like, are you a reporter? And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's usually like prelude to me getting bumped from the event. And then she goes, well, let me tell you, there was this fire at a local uh, chicken coop. And that's how they stole the election. They burned up all the ballots. 
<laughs> and this lady was a GOP precinct chair. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the that's the vibe you're going for here. I mean, there were some state reps, there was a state senator. Uh, so for me, I think the um, the deep rig sort of represented this, obviously, storyline we're following here, which is the continuing uh, consolidation between just totally conspiracy theory kooks and mainstream GOP. This is symbolized in the fact that the guy who ran the audit is in the movie being like, yeah, I think the CIA is up to no good with election fraud. Okay, so to give us an idea of the general vibe of the movie, if you had to cite a directorial influence on it, what did it remind you of? Did it remind you of like a Steven Soderbergh movie or was it more of a psychodrama in the vein of like early Darren Aronofsky? John Favreau's chef? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I've just picked a movie here at random. I would say it was like really like shot with like a lot of blues and like dark and like a lot of glass. It was almost like the shape of water, right? Like a lot of kind of like spooky warehouses and stuff. But that's the one with the fish, right? Yeah. So that was kind of like the cinematography. Yeah. But the whole thing was really an odd scene. And and I did not leave particularly convinced that the election was stolen. But, you know, I mean, that's sort of, I guess, like kind of the larger import, right, of all this is that you don't really need any of it to make sense if you're if you're a Republican, particularly if you're a Republican official or media personality. You just need something to point to. And then you can say, well, watch the deep rig for 45 bucks. <laughs> and and then, you know, people go off and, and then people are like, well, that didn't make any sense to me. And it's like, well, that's why they call them the dolphin speakers, dummy. I should say one more thing about the cost of it. So I did not see the entire Q&A because I was backstage hanging out with Baby Q, if I can name drop a little bit. But the price of this movie is actually sort of a big stick point with people because number one it stars a guy patrick byrne who is pretty wealthy right so maybe doesn't necessarily need to be like you know kind of scrounging for every penny here and also so they're like okay you need to host like the deal is all across the country you should host your own deep rig screening and you can like something like license it for like 500 bucks or something and so people in the in the chat were going like hey this kind of seems like we're getting soaked here i mean you're talking about what's ostensibly in the way these people are portraying it the fate of American democracy hinges on people seeing the deep rig. So yeah, I mean, there certainly was some pushback. Not everyone was super eager to part with their uh, 45 bucks. I'm not gonna lie. I really want to pay to see the movie now. Or maybe... Do not do it. Do not do it. Okay, okay, fine. This happens every time like I talk about one of these movies I have to watch and people are like, oh, it sounds pretty crazy. And it's just like, (laughs) please do not. (laughs) So, Will, swirling around in the background of all of these things, and oftentimes in the foreground, is Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. He didn't have anything to do with this movie, did he? Oh, no, he's all over it. So so this movie is in some ways the story of the Flynn brothers, Michael and Joseph Flynn. So Michael Flynn is in the movie wearing some QAnon bracelets, right? And then, but really sort of the the Greek chorus to the film, our narrator, the guy who kind of pops up and tells us what to think, is Joseph Flynn, Michael Flynn's brother. And I would say, to explain Joseph Flynn, imagine Michael Flynn, but with like no restraints or decorum. And so this guy is just like, yeah, January 6th, let's say it was a bit regrettable, I suppose. And so he's kind of like the character who he claims he put together this kind of crack team of election fraud investigators. But yeah, I mean, Michael Flynn is is super tight with this crew. I have to imagine he's getting money from them in some way. And now the deep rig is sort of just the latest example of him sort of hitting this whole circuit. I mean, it seems like every weekend now he's at one of these sort of pro-Trump events kind of doing his thing. So we are recording this episode the morning after Tucker Carlson first went on air on Fox News to loudly claim that the NSA and therefore the Biden government are spying on him 
and his show. But it's not just political protesters the government is spying on. Yesterday, we heard from a whistleblower within the U.S. government who reached out to warn us that the NSA, the National Security Agency, is monitoring our electronic communications and is planning to leak them in an attempt to take this show off the air. Now, that's a shocking claim, and ordinarily we'd be skeptical of it. It's illegal for the NSA to spy on American citizens. It's a crime. It's not a third world country. Things like that should not happen in America. But unfortunately, they do happen, and in this case, they did happen. So Tucker Carlson is right now claiming that this anonymous whistleblower has come forward to inform him that he and his show are being spied on by the NSA. This would be a huge, huge deal, of course, if true. The operative phrase here being a very, very, very gigantic if true. Will, did you watch this when this aired last night? Because I caught clips of it while I was going to bed and I sort of rolled my eyes and was like, okay, it's too late for this to infect my brain. So I just kind of turned off my phone and went to bed. Man, that's a lack of commitment to the pod, man. You got to be laying your sleep. You got to be laying your own brain on the line. So Tucker comes out and says he's being surveilled by the NSA, his source being one random anonymous dude, and that he's going to file a FOIA to get to the Freedom of Information Act request to get to the bottom of this. Typically, you don't say to the NSA, hey, are you snooping on me? And they say, sorry. This is a hilarious premise for anybody who has ever used the Freedom of Information Act request to uh, petition the government for anything. It's like, oh, wait, we, we can just do that to the NSA and they'll give us all their secrets and confirm who they are or aren't spying on. That's just not how it works. I will say, though, it's kind of a canny move to the extent that when this gets denied, they'll then be like, well, we're going to sue over it. Like, th there's kind of like a, a thing you can do where you create a storyline out of like pretty banal FOIA denials in the right-wing media where it can now be the updates on like every minor judicial thing can be a victory for Tucker or whatever. If Tucker does somehow get vindicated, obviously nobody on the show right now actually believes what he's selling. But if he does, I swear, I will come back on this broadcast and I will eat a $20 bill. I was going to say, if Tucker pulls off this FOIA, I think former Fever Dreams guest and FOIA ninja, FOIA expert uh, Ken Klippenstein will have to resign to and give Tucker his job. So, so much of Fox News, right, is, especially the prime time shows is like weird dancing around media critics and like hitting it hitting media critics and trying to pressure people not to cover them or punishing them if they do cover them and so in this case i mean maybe this is obvious to everyone but it sort of seems to me like tucker is forerunning some critical story about him that's going to come out because he says i'm being surveilled by the nsa and they're getting my messages, and they're going to leak them to create media stories. So what that kind of reads to me as is that if someone has a story that they're working on that's critical of Tucker. They got messages from his show that are not from the NSA, but from a more traditional leaking method, and that now he's trying to like throw dust up around this story by saying, so now, like, let's say the story comes out, and otherwise people would be like, ooh, Tucker, not looking good, buddy. And instead, the story is going to be about, like, Tucker says the NSA did this. Right. He claimed that his proof for the NSA spying on him and why he quote-unquote believes it is because his super-secret source ended up sending him copies of messages that he or his team had written that he claims could not have come from anything else except for top-secret government spying. I'm sorry, unless you are someone who's already jacked into the Tucker Carlson and Fox News network and can't see reality outside of that environment, that doesn't make sense to anybody. Of course you could have gotten messages or emails that Tucker and his team have sent from other means. Any, basically anyone could have leaked that. <laughs> It is funny imagining being the guy who is the leaker and Tucker, like, I mean, obviously this is a very cynical thing on Tucker's part, but but if you imagine he's like, how do these messages get out? And someone's like, Tucker, it's got to be the NSA, dude. <laughs> you 
no, no, no other way this could have gotten out there. I would be willing to bet a gigantic pile of money that Tucker Carlson does not actually believe. He he does not believe this. This is just I, something I, I he's saying. I think that's correct. But I think the larger import here is this is just sort of like the upping the ante in terms of the just absolutely crazy conspiracy theories that you used to get, I don't know, maybe once a month on Tucker Carlson. And now it seems like we get every other episode between obviously he was hinting that the FBI did January 6th a week or two ago. And now he's claiming he's being surveilled by the NSA. I mean, this creates sort of this this environment where because the viewers have this is several years into the show now. And so the viewers, I think, have pretty much bought into Tucker's credibility that now he can pretty much say whatever he wants. And the other weird thing here, right, is this ship has sailed. But in just in terms of Fox News, like letting this guy say ostensibly like newsworthy things that are just totally crazy and almost certainly lies. That's just another thing to think about here. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, if the NSA has been spying on all of us, which to some degree we know has been true for years, then technically they have spied on Tucker and his staff. So checkmate lips. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now, on this week's episode, we bring you our latest guest, Adam Serwer. By day, Adam is a staff writer at The Atlantic. By night, he is the author of the new book, The Cruelty is the Point, which was just released this week by Penguin Random House. I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy a copy today. In recent years, Adam has been praised by many of his peers in political media as one of the most knowledgeable and trenchant essayists of the past half decade. In his series of essays and reported columns at The Atlantic, and now in his new book, he has, in my humble opinion, done the best job of anybody on the American political media landscape of explaining in rich details precisely why the Trumpist GOP is merely a crude outgrowth of, not a deviation from, America's true character throughout history. And in the interest of full disclosure, Adam and I used to work together as fellow political reporters in the DC Bureau of Mother Jones magazine, so much so that our desks used to touch. So you can expect this to be a remarkably hostile interview full of ad hominem and bitter rivalry. Adam. Welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. <laughs> that, there was a plot twist at the end, and, and one that you do not at all endorse, just to be clear. So the first thing I want to get into with you is you have a chapter in your new book, The Cruelty is the Point, that centers on Giuliani, police unions, and how it relates to the Trump era. But you take a little trip back in time, and you did a good amount of reporting for this specific essay that you have told me before actually made you unexpectedly more sympathetic to people who want police unions. Can you get into that and explain why this chapter matters about our conversation today, especially when so much of the political dynamic in this country has to do with how tough on crime people want to be during the pandemic? So this is probably, I mean, this may get me in trouble with some people, but I, I talked to a lot of police, uh, former police officers who had 
like pretty serious critiques of how their police departments worked. I mean, one of the guys I talked to was a cop who was present at the riot. He was a rookie cop at the time. And he's just like, how am I supposed to police my senior colleagues who are these white guys who are higher ranking and who are like at a racist rally attacking the black mayor of New York City? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? But I also talked to a guy named Michael Quinn who had written about the police code of silence. And he was a former police officer in Minneapolis. So he like knew a lot of the people like involved in the whole George Floyd situation, like in the, in the um, Minneapolis Police Department, he had written this book about how basically the culture of police, there's a culture of silence within policing that turns the idea of accountability on itself. So if you're a cop and you see another cop do something illegal, either, you know, he, he hurts someone, he steals from someone, he plants drugs on someone, you are less likely to say something because not only is the guy going to, not going to get fired because the union protections are so strong, but what's going to happen after you speak out is like, every, you're going to be ostracized. People are like, not going to show up when you need backup. They're going to call you a rat behind your back. You're not going to have the confidence of management and you're not going to have the confidence of your colleagues. To some extent, like I understand, it made me, help me understand. I, when I asked him what, whether, what role the unions played in this, and he explained that they played a negative one, he also defended them by saying, you know, I've had colleagues who management wanted to fire them for arbitrary reasons. I did not check this example personally, but one of the examples he offered was he knew a cop who was gay in the department, like in the 80s, and management wanted to get rid of him for that. And they couldn't because there was no at-will employment. And so that, to some extent, made me more sympathetic to their situation in terms of wanting better pay, better benefits. I get it. But the problem is that because policing involves the authority to use lethal force, inevitably, the unions become fixated on defending officers from acts of misconduct that involve violence. And that's dangerous for democracy because it means that they can withhold their cloak of protection from certain parts, from certain communities as a form of labor protest because they're displeased with something. I don't know if you all remember this, but Bill Barr actually said, if you don't stop criticizing the police, those communities are going to lose that protection. That's crazy. That's policing as a protection racket. And that's basically, I mean, when you think about the politics of Donald Trump, so much of, I think, unfairly, so much of racism in American politics is wrongly attributed as just a Southern thing, as a Southern phenomenon. But Donald Trump's white identity politics is very much the politics of like New York City police unions where everybody's a criminal. I mean, you think about the Central Park Five ad he took out. We're on the verge of some sort of anarchic society where people are being killed and, and murdered and raped in the street all the time. And the police are here to defend you from the barbarians. That sort of vision of violence in society is one that is put forth by police unions, but it's also like fundamentally the one that motivates Donald Trump. He's not like some neo-Confederate guy, even though he, he indulged that aspect of America's racial nostalgia many times. That's not really his orientation. His orientation is the guy who speaks in front of an audience of cops and tells them to go ahead and, and you know knock the guy's head against the car while you're arresting a suspect. Right, exactly. He is the kind of old white guy who lived through a crime panic or two in New York City and never got over it. That is the defining characteristic, to me at least, of the politics of Trumpism. But uh, for our listeners who don't remember or are not aware of this Giuliani-led cop riot, can you explain that? Because you paint a very grotesque and devastating portrait of it, and you explain why that matters today, all the way up to 2021. Can you explain what that was and what it was like talking to a black cop who was there, who I think compared it to a Klan rally? So- the context of this police riot in New York was that 
New York is dealing with a crime wave in the early 90s, and it was a very serious problem. And Dinkins had actually significantly funded the police. Uh, he had hired a lot of new police officers, but he didn't give them literally everything he, they wanted. They Some of them wanted new sidearms. He had also, like, as a way to try and keep peace in the city, as we now know, uh, acts of police brutality sometimes provoke civil unrest. And there was an incident involving a suspected drug dealer where Dinkins had gone to like comfort the family as a way to calm tensions in the community. And the union had essentially said, screw this guy Dinkins, he loves criminals, which obviously is like a, a loaded statement racially, both about the slain suspect who is Dominican American and David Dinkins, who's a black American. And so despite the fact that David Dinkins was very pro-cop, he nonetheless did not sufficiently placate the unions. And so the result was that there was this massive rally where Rudy Giuliani is like leading a bunch of cops screaming obscenities at the mayor. It's one of the most disgraceful scenes in, in New York City history. This officer that I spoke to who's in the piece, you know, he's talking about this looks like a racist rally to him. And these are his colleagues and superior. And there was an echo to me of that in the Capitol riot, where after all, you have Giuliani who's encouraging this incredibly idiotic falsehood that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, which is the proxy catalyst for the Capitol riot. And you have, once again, all these people who are supposedly like pro-police who are refusing to recognize the legitimacy of the elected government. And in fact, you have these black police officers who, even though they're police officers, even though supposedly these people, the, the crowd is a Blue Lives Matter crowd, they're sitting here beating on and attacking the police because to them, they were supportive of police officers as long as they understood their job to be policing the colored line. And as soon as that they didn't feel as though they were fulfilling that particular role. They lost their loyalty to the police as an institution, which is why they just how they justified engaging in physical violence against the police at the Capitol riot. They called them traitors because they had broken the, co the implicit covenant of Blue Lives Matter, which was you will brutalize those people and protect us. But if you protect other people from us, then you've broken the accord and we don't like you anymore. This is part of what's so problematic about police unions is they turn the police into a political constituency that has an interest in maintaining the ability to use violence with impunity against the public that it is meant to defend. And part of the way the public rationalizes that violence is it thinks of it as a a problem for Black people and Latino people. Now, look, this is not true. This is this is an issue that that happens when issues become, you know, the, the word in academia is race, is when people associate them as like they think of them as a Black problem or a Hispanic problem, and they don't realize how much of a problem it is for white people as well. And they can rationalize it away as something that's not going to affect them. But it affects everybody. It erodes our understanding, which is that the people with guns and in uniforms do not get to make the decisions. The, the civilians make the decisions. And civilians shouldn't have to make those decisions um, being intimidated by the organizations that represent armed agents of the state. We didn't even have professional police until much later than other parts of the Western world, precisely because of tremendous skepticism, lingering skepticism about so-called standing armies among the founding fathers, for whom the memories of British occupation were pretty fresh. Somehow, partially as a result of racial politics, slavery in the South, and riots in the North, we have a system of policing that unfortunately has its 
mechanisms of accountability have been short-circuited in large part because of our racial politics, which is unfortunate because, again, the fact that Black and Latino people suffer disproportionately from police brutality doesn't mean that it's not also a white problem. It's just, but that perception has prevented us, has not only uh, prevented us from dealing with the problem, it's also made it easier for police unions to frame this in racial terms and say, you know, we're the ones who are going to protect you from them. So Adam, so your book is called The Cruelty is the Point. And so obviously this dates back to a 2018 essay you wrote for The Atlantic. And I think it's such an interesting frame in order to understand both the Trump years and where the right is now. If you could explain to the listener, what do you mean by the cruelty is the point? And, and sort of where did you come up with this concept? So the proximate inspiration for that phrase was the president. So I don't know if everybody remembers the Kavanaugh hearings when Christine Blasey Ford testified that she had been sexually assaulted by Kavanaugh and a childhood friend. And she said in her testimony, indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter, which is obviously a very memorable phrase. And so it struck me when later Trump defending his nominee. Now, look, I'm not saying you have to absolutely believe Ford, but when Trump mocked her in front of the audience, and made fun of her. He had heard in her testimony something that caused her a tremendous amount of pain, and he deliberately exploited that opening. And the audience who was there to hear him do that loved it. Um, And so to me, it was just very clear. It was like at that moment that I sort of understood that this was not simply, you know, this was an act of cruelty, yes, against a supposed enemy, but it was also a way of emotionally bonding between Trump and his audience. And one of the things I try to argue in the, in the piece and in the book that this is like part of human nature. If you remember back to childhood, maybe you remember the cool kids making fun of a nerdy kid and you probably wanted to fit in with the cool kids. Maybe you made fun of the nerdy kid too, or you didn't interfere, you let it happen. And so like cruelty is a way of, it's not just a way of hurting people. It's also a way of forming community and intimacy. And that's how Trump cultivated this devotion in this subsegment of his supporters was just by repeating this message that you hear on Fox News all the time, which is that these other people who are different from you want to destroy you and your way of life. And so you are justified in doing anything you can to prevent that from happening. And so that's really like what the book is about. Like cruelty is an individual problem. It's part of human nature. But what I'm trying to do is talk about it as a part of politics, specifically the way that it's used to demonize certain groups so that you can justify denying people their basic rights under the Constitution and exclude them from the political process. The issue here is not just simply a matter of like personal virtue. It's about our system because the American system, because of the Electoral College, because of gerrymandering, because of malapportionment in the Senate, it incentivizes a politics of cruelty because the structure of our system allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes. So it becomes more urgent to persuade that group that has that outsized political influence, that they're on the verge of destruction, that anything they do to prevent this is justified. And that's why how you end up with things like disenfranchising rival constituencies, with bans on people on the basis of religion, with laws attacking trans children or removing civil liability for vehicular homicide against protesters. I mean, these are things that come about as a result of this political strategy of cruelty. I think the overarching theme of your book is the clear and present threats to multiracial democracy as it currently stands in American society. And you see this threat coming primarily, if not exclusively, from forces on the right and the Republican Party, accelerated in some ways by the rise of Donald Trump and Trumpism. But you also make the point that we don't know if this is going to work yet. 
we don't know if all hope is lost yet on this respect. And one of the ways you frame that big old question mark is by examining the Democratic Party of the mid and early 20th century. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you could think of this almost as like a virus, this virus of white man's government, which is a part of our founding. So we have, there's a duality to the founding of the United States. On the one hand, you have all men are created equal. And on the other hand, you have the fugitive slave clause and the three-fifths clause. And so this, this sort of fundamental contradiction, is this a white man's country or is this a country for all its people, is one that has been at the center of American political conflict for centuries. And I think that this vision of white man's government, it's not necessarily, I think, because the New Deal liberalism identity is so prominent in the United States that we've sort of forgotten that this is a virus that can attach itself to any political ideology. The radical Republicans were like pretty pro-capitalist because they were called adherence to free labor ideology. Grant was pretty conservative. U.S. Grant was pretty conservative in, in economic terms. And he was the first American president to actually think to defend Black citizenship and see Black people as equal citizens in the United States. But the issue is that whenever the parties become polarized along racial lines, this ideology emerges where it says these other people are not truly American. And therefore, we are not only justified in excising them from the polity, but it is a defensive democracy to get rid of these people. And this was how the Democrats, after Reconstruction, this is how they justified disenfranchising Black voters. They, they said, you know, Black voters were marring democracy by their participation. And ultimately, after Black voters were severed from the franchise, the Republican Party was no longer motivated to defend Black rights. So like when Taft takes office and Taft is someone who is engaging in the process of purging black officers from local Republican organizations, he's complimenting the Democrats of the South for excising an ignorant element from the polity. And everybody knows what Taft means by that. So once black people are removed from the political process, what emerges is a consensus on white supremacy. And there's something similar going on here, which is basically what the Republicans are trying to do is lock in a more conservative electorate. It's not as racist a vision as the Democrats after Reconstruction, but it is one in which they want to diminish the influence of democratic constituencies on the political process. And because the parties are racially polarized, that disenfranchisement ultimately falls along racial lines and takes on racial justifications. As you can see on Fox News every night with someone like Tucker Carlson claiming that white people are going to be the victims of, of, of a genocide or they're going to be replaced with, quote unquote, more obedient voters from the third world, which is completely false, by the way. There's no reason why those people can't be loyal Republican voters. It is a horrendous biological determinism and just like a, a foolish belief that somehow Republicans couldn't win these people over. What they want is to not have to try and win them over. That's always been, whether it's coming from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, that's always the great threat to American democracy has always been this attempt to restrict uh, the franchise to particular people who are seen as above everybody else. Right. One of my least favorite retorts from the right when you talk about things like this is they want to be glib, they want to be clever and say things like, well, under Donald Trump in 2020, he actually expanded his margins with brown and black voters. So why are you being just some PC lib saying that the Republican Party and Trumpism are thoroughly racist? How, how can those things exist in your head? Whenever they say that, I mean, not to go, there are many arguments you can throw back at them. But the first thing that comes to my mind is that I don't think a single one of these people have paid attention to what the Democratic Party was like under FDR. 
in terms of being thoroughly racist on one hand and then expanding the margin with black voters with the other. Yeah, there's two things here. One is that certainly true that Donald Trump did a little better with Latino and, and black voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. But that doesn't actually change the nature of the party. As you mentioned, the Democratic Party won the northern black vote in 1932. But the Democratic Party at that time, I don't think anybody would argue that it was not a white supremacist organization. It absolutely was. And what happened was that the entry of Black voters into the Democratic column and the New Deal's revelation that government could actually make a huge different difference in the lives of poor people, it was an earthquake in American politics. And it turned the most authoritarian white supremacist organization in the United States at the time into a party of civil rights. And that's important because it means that parties can change when their incentives towards holding power change. And the other response to that is, if we all acknowledge that Donald Trump did better with Latino and Black voters in 2020 than 2016, then it is absolutely insane to continue to talk about these people as if the Republican Party can't win them over, and therefore they're justified in disenfranchising them, or the Democratic Party is trying to import them to replace white voters. It doesn't make sense. As a plan, it won't work, because after all, conservatism is never going away, and I don't think it can only appeal to white people. The problem is the merger of conservatism with white identity politics and the unwillingness of the Republican Party to abandon the latter. Right. In that sense, Trump is not a fascist, quote unquote, or per se, in some of the ways that resistance libs like to compare him to something that would constitute a foreign kind of threat. He's George Wallace, which is a historical comparison I believe you make in the book and have made for many years. I think Wallace and Trump share a lot in common because everybody, you know, Wallace is thought of as like an evil guy, but he's also one of the most important political figures of the 20th century. Because first of all, Wallace is interesting because he started off as like a non-racist populist and he gets beat in a primary by a racist candidate. And he says, well, I'm never going to get out N-worded again. And you obviously know what that means. And he never was out and worded again. He was never out and worded for the rest of his life. And so, but what he does is the Republican Party is struggling with their, obviously their opposition to civil rights measures in 64 gets Barry Goldwater the Southern vote. But these are not small government conservatives in the Barry Goldwater mold. They're voting for him because they like his opposition to altering the structures of white supremacy that exist in the South. It's George Wallace who melds that economic conservatism with a kind of white populism that is not entirely anti-big government, that really creates the sort of Nixonian majority that emerges in the late 1960s. Nixon takes what Wallace is doing, and Wallace is particularly like, he is engaging in the same kind of like police union politics that you see Trump doing. I mean, he says, he goes to the Fraternal Order of Police and says, if you guys could run the country for a couple of days, there would be no more crime. He says the police are basically an oppressed group and he praises their behavior at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Now, this is too much for Nixon, right? But Nixon takes these themes and he like melds them And there's a great book that talks about the contingency of this political identity and that it didn't necessarily have to. It wasn't necessarily the case that the William F. Buckley conservatives in the Solid South were going to develop a political, a a merger, emerged political identity that could win a majority in the United States. But Nixon takes 
the parts of Wallace that he can use, and he waters them down a bit so that he doesn't sound like a raving segregationist. And he cobbles together a majority that keeps the Republican Party in power for a very long time. And so Trump famously borrows a ton of phrases from Nixon. He borrows a certain kind of politics from Nixon, but he also adds the sort of bombastic politics of Wallace in terms of overtly going after individual people and like saying things like, Black and Hispanic immigrants are from shithole countries. We think of Nixon as like this huge racist who, in, who, who did this Southern strategy, but he's act, Nixon's strategy was actually more moderate and offered more deference to the goals of civil rights organizations than Trump did. And so Trump is actually more of a Wallace figure than a Nixon figure for that reason. Everybody sort of forgets that Nixon at one point was, and this is another example of how politicians change as a result of their constituency. In the Eisenhower administration, Nixon was like the point guy on civil rights. If you read Caro's biography of Johnson, he's like the good guy in the fight between him and Johnson over the, the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Nixon is the guy who's having reporters from Jet and Ebony over to the vice president's residence to talk to them about the Eisenhower uh, administration civil rights initiatives. So again, like to some extent, it's good to focus on the individual qualities of these individual people. And, and Donald Trump is obviously individually a remarkable person. And I mean that not in a positive way, but he is also a manifestation of structural factors in American politics, much like Nixon was, much like Barack Obama was. It's not a situation that can simply be fixed by removing him. Adam, another section of the book we want to ask you about was your immigration chapter. You get into, among other things, the families of Trump lieutenants like Stephen Miller, Rudy Giuliani, John Kelly, and you show in very graphic detail how their families, generations ago, arrived to this country in the very same disorganized and quote-unquote improper way that when they were in power, they railed against in terms of rhetoric and policy. Can you get into that historical, I don't know if we'd call it hypocrisy, it's more complicated than hypocrisy. It's actually sort of a weird and interesting story, which is that the descendants, immigrants who were once despised, ultimately become nativists who talk about new immigrants in the same tone that their ancestors were once spoken of. And the inspiration from this essay came from when I went to Trump rallies in 2016 and I talked to folks. Sometimes people would tell me, my ancestors were Italian, but they came the right way. And so when I looked into that, what I found out was that if you were European prior to the 1920s, there was almost no wrong way to come to the United States. There was nothing resembling the large immigration, deportation, and detention apparatus that we have today. That was largely constructed as a result of people trying, attempting to prevent Mexicans from coming into the United States or from staying and becoming citizens while still exploiting their labor. And I think, you know, when you look at the Trump administration, it's full of people with, with names like Kelly and Giuliani and Miller, who are the descendants of immigrants who were demonized at the turn of the century and who were seen at the time. You know, I think everybody thinks because race is a social construction and it's a powerful one, people think of it, it white has meant the same thing throughout history. But at the turn of the century, people t spoke of white races, plural. And they considered in the eugenic ideology of that era, they considered Nordics to be the superior white people. And that was the primary, quote, native stock of Americans who founded the country. And that stock was being diluted by Italians, by Jews, by the Irish. And so in the 20s, they passed all these immigration laws, um, immigration restriction laws that barred 
African and Asian immigration, and that tried to prevent Italians and Jews and Greeks and, and other Europeans considered inferior from coming to the United States. And they were explicit that this was about preserving what they saw as the, quote, native white genetic stock of the country. One of the senators, uh, Senator Reid, whose name is on the bill, he wrote in the New York Times, the racial composition of the country is thus made permanent. They knew, absolutely knew what they were doing. And so when people talk about, you know, on the one hand, the immigrants, you know, these immigrants who are coming today are very much of the century. The difference is that we have this huge militarized immigration system to keep them from coming in and to remove them once they are here. And I use the story of Stephen Miller's own ancestor to illustrate the difference between what things were like when his ancestor came over, or for that matter, when my Jewish ancestors came over, and what it's like for immigrants from south of the border who are trying to get into the United States today. And you spoke to Stephen Miller's uncle for this essay, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So Stephen Miller's uncle, he actually works with Hyas, the group that was the target of the terrorist attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh, that the gunmen believed that Hyas was participating in, quote, white genocide by helping immigrants come to the United States, which is what they've always done, and which they highest helped Miller's family get here. What Stephen Miller's uncle told me was that his grandfather like left a ton of money to highest because of what they did to help them come to the United States and live in freedom. And there's something horrifying about that, about this person coming into Pittsburgh and gunning down Jews at prayer on the basis of the same ideology that motivated the immigration restrictions that were passed in the 1920s, which Stephen Miller has explicitly praised, and which arguably led to, were responsible for the fact that the rest of his family that was left back in Russia, like many of us, was wiped out during the Holocaust because they were no longer able to come to the United States. That, that was real heavy, but like when you think, when you look at Stephen Miller and when he starts trying to dunk on Ilan Omar or something by being like, as a Jew, it's like, well, as a Jew, you, you, you praised anti-Semitic immigration laws that made the Holocaust worse. So you actually probably shouldn't do that. You can, you can just like clip that phrase out of your vocabulary. Thanks. So Adam, obviously you deal with a lot of, of heavy topics here in both your job at the Atlantic and writing uh, The Cruelty is the Point. You also, though, have a set of very cute cats called the Garfields. Obviously, we're a pro-cat podcast here. How are the cats doing? The cats are doing great. So we recently adopted a Chihuahua mix. She is seven years old. Her name is Cora. She is the same color as the other cats, which is very funny. So she's an honorary Garfield. And she's a very sweet pup. Her owner died, so we took her in. And they've sort of developed a very funny relationship because I don't know if you've ever seen like dogs and cats interact when they first meet each other, but it's like they want to be nice to each other, but they like one of them speaks dog and the other speaks cat and they, they can't tell when the other one wants to play or is being threatening or like wants to hang out or is like invading their space. It's anyway, it's very adorable, but they're sort of figuring each other out and it's very fun to watch. And also, my daughter, who is almost two years old, she was, the cats very much taught her to, she has just like a very good instinct with animals as a result of having cats around while she was learning how to walk and interact with other things. And so she is sort of like, has this very adorable relationship with all the animals in the house that is awesome to be around. So everybody's doing great is the answer to that question. Very cool. Well, we appreciate the Garfield update. Well, Adam, thanks so much for coming on. And folks, again, that the book is The Cruelty is the Point, out now from One World. And now we bring our listeners to perhaps our favorite segment on this show, a recording segment we like to call Fresh Hell, in which we introduce our audience to something batshit that's happening in the world that they may not believe is actually happening, but is happening nonetheless. 
So, Will, John McAfee is dead. The moment that news started trickling out, we both knew that, okay, this is going to lead to a deluge of suicide conspiracy theories. Explain to us what, what you've been looking into in that yeah, so so John McAfee appears to have killed himself in a Spanish jail cell after his extradition thing, his fight he lost, essentially, to get extradited to the U.S. And it sort of seems like a, a pretty straightforward story, except we're in 2021, and these kind of kind of conspiratorial rich guys dying will never be that straightforward. And so McAfee's an interesting guy because he set himself up very self-consciously as a guy to suggest that he had been murdered by the Clinton crime family or murdered by the deep state. After he died, his Instagram account posted a big old Q. And so I was thinking about this. This came up because a lot of people, including Glenn Greenwald, keyed in on this tweet John McAfee sent, I believe, a year or two ago that was like, if I ever die, it won't be because of suicide. And if it looks like a suicide, it's because I've been murdered by the deep state. But I think one thing a lot of people don't realize is how often people say that and how that's just like a thing that comes up constantly in right-wing circles. I was thinking about when I was at QCon and Jason Sullivan, who's this Roger Stone associate, he was saying something about Hillary Clinton. And then he started like yanking at his neck like he was being hung. And he was like, I didn't kill myself. (laughs) And the crowd went wild. They love it. I mean, everyone knows this bit. So I think people underestimate how often people casually say uh, in right-wing circles, reminder, I will never kill myself. It's a bit. It's like the right-wing version of the liberal resistance version of talking about the P-tape. It's just a bit. Well, it kind of reminds me of when that guy would tweet, the reporter would tweet, this is my daily post. I have not been arrested by the Trump Justice Department oh, if I awesome. do not make my posts. That was fantastic. And then he stopped doing so it. So he's, he's like, in I Gitmo. To Guantanamo Bay. The other thing I think McAfee's death highlights in terms of like the conventions of conspiracy theories is the concept of the dead man switch, which is, of course, if I'm killed, all this damaging information will come out. And this is like a big thing. This was a big thing with a guy named Isaac Cappy, who was on Vanderpump Rules and became a QAnon guy. There's all these like mythical dead man switches that are supposed to come out. And so of in the course. case of McAfee, of course, being kind of a paranoid rich guy, he was always talking about his dead man switch. And now we see people are saying, oh, the information in the dead man switch was located in none other than Surfside, Florida, where that building collapsed and stuff like that. And so people love the switch. So, Will, just to demonstrate a little bit more to our audience how on the level this guy was when he was still around and alive. You once had a conversation with him, a very interesting conversation about Bitcoin. Can you quickly explain? Yeah. So McAfee, I mean, just to kind of get get in the idea of this guy who is very like self-mythologizing about his own potential demise. So there was a point where someone was flying drones over Epstein's island. And McAfee was like, he's famously a boat guy. He was hanging out in the Caribbean. So I emailed him and I was like, hey, are you the guy flying the drones? And he did this whole thing where he was like, to be clear, I do not tell anyone I am involved in this. I am not involved in this because whoever is doing it could be murdered. And then I said, well, as long as I have you, he had made this bet where he said he would eat his own penis live on television if each Bitcoin wasn't worth a million dollars by the end of 2020. And I said, are you still committed to this bet? Because it was looking pretty grim at the time. And he said, yes, I'm still committed to it. Did he ever eat his penis on live TV? He did not ultimately do that. So so this is not exactly history's most reliable person. Oh, Rest in peace. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues of The Daily Beast and beyond from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.